Hi, this is Be Play Love, the parenting podcast that you can fit in your pocket. Short, informative and interesting interviews about everything from toilet training to how emotion coaching works. I'm your host, Siobhan Hunt. The next interview is one of the diamonds from our archive. Enjoy. Bedwetting. It's one of those things I figure nearly every family goes through. I kind of look at it as like another stage of the learning to use a toilet process. I figure that when I finally take nappies off my daughter at nighttime, she's going to wet the bed. So is it part of that natural process of growing up and learning to use the toilet? And what about when your kids are well out of nappies? How common is it for them then to still be wetting the bed? Dr. Margie Danchin is a paediatrician with the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Hi, Margie. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thanks. So is bedwetting part of that sort of process of learning to use the toilet? Um, You know, that they're just learning to wake up and use a toilet when they need to? Yeah, so I think, you know, parents often don't realise just how common bedwetting is and that their child is not being uh, naughty or lazy and that it is part of that developmental um, stage of of learning how to, you know, um, be continent um, with both bowels and bladder. So it is very common. And when we say up to a third of four-year-olds are still wetting the bed and about 10% of six-year-olds are still wetting the bed and even 5% of 10-year-olds. So that sort of gives you an idea of just how common it is. So if we can look at ages, um, do you have any advice for parents whose babies, or toddlers I should say, who are just starting to sleep through the night without a nappy? Um, is there, do you have any advice on how they can approach that phase of learning how to use the toilet? Yeah, so I think um, uh, the first step is really to help a child to be continent, um, particularly of their urine uh, during the day and make sure that they are confident and don't have any fear of using the toilet and that they regularly go to the toilet during the day. Um, But then the next step is to make sure that they're actually drinking enough during the day because one of the issues we find later on with children who are wetting the bed later is that often they're not drinking enough and their bladders are small like a little walnut and have only a small amount of concentrated urine. So kids need to actually drink enough during the day to stretch their bladders out to make sure that they have um, not that the urine's not too concentrated and irritating the bladder. And would you suggest not to give them drinks before bed? I know some people use that as part of their sleep settling routine, that they might give them a drink of milk before they clean their teeth and read a book and go to bed. Would you suggest cutting out that kind of um, giving liquid before bed? Actually, it's not necessary to limit drinks before kids go to sleep. It really doesn't make any difference to the wedding. If their bladder is of a good enough size or capacity, then it should be able to cope with you know, a bottle or a drink before bedtime. So I think it's actually a bit of a myth that if you limit drinks before bed that they won't wet and it can actually make kids quite distressed. And uh, So it's actually not very helpful. You're listening to Kindling Conversation and we're speaking with Dr. Margie Danchen, a paediatrician with the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, about bedwetting. Um, Margie, you were just talking there about um, how it's a bit of a myth about restricting drinks before bed. What are other ways parents can um, manage bedwetting in, say, older children? 
Yeah. So, you know, we don't really get um, concerned about sort of the need to treat bedwetting until kids are older than sort of six or seven years. Under that time, um, it's sort of more about those strategies I just mentioned before about making sure that they have control of their urine during the day and drinking enough and so on. But after six or seven, when kids are now at school and um, they start to have more of an impact in terms of wetting the bed if they're having sleepovers or they're more self-conscious, then we help families start thinking about um, treating wetting. Um, so the first step really, as I said, is to make sure kids are drinking enough during the day and also to make sure that children are not constipated. Um, and that might be something really interesting for parents to sort of become aware of is that in fact there's a really clear link between wetting at night um, and during the day and, and being constipated. So making sure that children are going to the toilet to pass um, poos regularly and that they're soft is also really important. And um, I, I noticed on your blog, you wrote about the use of alarms, which um, when I first read it, I thought, that sounds a bit extreme and terrifying. Um, how, how are alarms used in managing bedwetting in older children? So as I say, once you have actually had a chat about making sure that um, you know this is really a big issue for the child and the family and you've sort of looked at some of those um, uh, easier things to tackle like the drinking and the constipation, then it might be time to discuss an alarm with a child and a family. And this really has to be something that the child's motivated to do and that the parent's happy to do um, because it is a bit of an undertaking. Um, and essentially the theory behind the alarm is that you are helping a child to learn to wake um, when they get the sensation of having a full bladder and go to the toilet or hold onto their urine rather than just wetting in, in sleep. So what that means is you um, get either a, a small little alarm that can clip onto the child's pyjamas, sort of normally um, where the pocket is, up near the heart, and then there's a little um, wire that connects to a sensor that goes between two pairs of underpants. Um, this alarm is actually very easy to use. It's not that cumbersome, but parents have to buy it online, so it's good to chat about this with a GP or paediatrician and which one to go for. Um, and kids really tolerate this pretty well. And then the other one, which I think a lot of your parents would might be a little bit more familiar with, is the mat where the child sleeps on a big mat and the alarm is actually a box on the other side of the room. And then when the child wets in the night, the alarm goes off. Um, so they're the sort of two options parents have. Um, but there's actually quite a few little tricks around using the alarm and making sure that it's effective because we're asking kids to do this for at least six weeks, but sometimes up to eight to 12 weeks. And I guess what you're saying about making sure the child's on board um, takes away the fear or shame that might be involved in using an alarm that way because they're, they're keen to solve what's happening? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, they do need to sort of say, yes, it is a problem for them and they want to do something about it and, um, and, and that you, you know, they're, they're on board because the other key um, sort of piece of information or key um, indicator for success of the alarm is the child waking and turning the alarm off themselves. So they have to be motivated when the alarm goes off to either turn off the little switch on their pyjamas or to get up and walk across the room and turn the alarm off. It doesn't work if the parent turns the alarm off because part of this is training um, the child to wake um, before the alarm would actually go off. So they have to actually be fully awake. So in this instance and um, in ones where it's, it's sort of a common bedwetting experience that's happening, 
Is it mainly happening because children are just, some children are just really deep sleepers? Yeah, that's absolutely the most common cause of bedwetting. Is, and it's often familial. You know, almost always we have a family history of one or both parents who wet the bed until later, maybe 10 or later. Um, and again, parents being very deep sleepers and the child being a deep sleeper and just not waking to that sensation of a full bladder. Um, and then the other two reasons why children wet is that maybe their kidneys might just produce a bit much urine um, for their bladder to hold, or as I said before, the bladder just not might not be big enough or stretched enough to actually hold the urine that's produced overnight. And I know that you've also mentioned in more extreme cases, medication can come into the equation. Um, how does the medication work and when, um, generally, if you can say generally speaking, when is it appropriate to, to consider that option? So medication is definitely a very second line um, uh, treatment. We go through all the simple measures I've talked about and then at least one, if not two, goes at the alarm and then we think about, okay, what what can medication add? Um, And really the medication is about um, reducing the amount of urine that goes into the bladder from the kidneys, so um, actually just less urine volume in the in the bladder, um, and that's a, a, usually a little wafer. Um, it's called minerin, and our approach to using that is um, to use it sort of for a three-month period in a child who has not been successful with the alarm one or two times, and then to try and sort of withdraw it. So we don't like kids to be on this long term if they don't have to be. And the other way this medicine can be used is also if the child has like a camp or a sleepover they can, and they're familiar with using these tablets, the parents can have them in the cupboard and use them intermittently to give the child the confidence that they definitely won't wet in that sort of situation. Um, but it is very much second line. And then there is one second medication that you can use that helps a little bit with that bladder jiggliness or irritation that can sometimes ha- occur from having very strong urine in the bladder or from having constipation and um, having the poo pushing on the on the bladder. So there are two medicines we can use, but the wafer that reduces the amount of urine in the bladder is the one that we use the most. So what you would say is that um, overwhelmingly most cases are... Um, probably solved by the time the child is about six? Yeah, I think we always give kids a chance to sort of have it resolve on their own um, and make sure that they are drinking enough and that they're not constipated. Um, And then by six or seven is when we would start really tackling it. Unless they have daytime symptoms, and that's another important thing to note for parents, if the child is wetting their underpants during the day or soiling their underpants during the day with poo, then we would probably manage that first and there's, often, there's a strong link between nighttime wetting and those sort of symptoms, so they should be seen sooner. So I imagine that some children and their parents, this can be quite a distressing experience for them. I mean, do you have any advice on how parents can talk to their kids about it or how parents themselves can think about this period if their child is bedwetting? Yeah, kids get very embarrassed about talking about wheeze and poos and I think for parents it's about normalising it and sometimes the parents saying, look, mummy did this and daddy did this and it's okay and we're not angry and we know you're not being naughty. So trying to remove that sense of shame and sort of normalising it as a topic I think is really important. I mean, obviously you can't do that with a toddler but with a five or six-year-old you can have those sorts of conversations. Um, But when you actually get a child um, and you're discussing it with them, they are often very shy and, you know, to go through the process of treating 
wetting and them coming back and they're showing you that they're dry. It's honestly one of the most rewarding things you can help a child with um, as a paediatrician. They're just so proud if they can actually um, achieve dryness. Um, and so it's really just about normalising it for them and not making them feel shame. And I guess as parents, remembering that it is a, a stage that they will probably grow out of. Absolutely. Mm. Maggie, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time. Thank you.